All right, Psalm 61. To the chief musician on a stringed instrument, a psalm of David. Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings, Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. You will prolong the king's life, his years as many generations. He shall abide before God forever. O prepare mercy and truth, which may preserve him. So I will sing praise to your name forever, that I may daily perform my vows. And uh, it's a wonderful day. Uh, Beth emailed me this morning, She said, or yesterday, I can't remember what, she said, we'll be at the church uh, Yesterday will be there tomorrow or today. I can't remember, but I, you know, I, I get up and I see yesterday's emails. And anyway, um, it's a good day for them and for anybody that hasn't been here to be here because today we're going to part the Red Sea. Wonderful stuff. I, I've just been waiting for this anxiously. We're at Exodus 14. We're in verses 21 through 31 today. It's entitled The Parting of the Red Sea. And um, just so you know, if you're a little bit lost because these things, these stories occur in a sequence for a reason. And we went through the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and that was given for a reason. And the, the parting of the Red Sea occurs on the last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread for a reason. It's picturing our own process of redemption. So if you're a little bit lost, I apologize, but you shouldn't be. I, I try to be clear enough where you'll understand everything that's going on. But um, here we go, starting in verse uh, 21. Um, the, then Moses uh, stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. And he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their children, chariots and on their horsemen. And uh, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the Red Sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people believed, feared the Lord, and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Does anyone here know how many times waters are parted for people to cross over in the Bible? Twice, three, three, okay, two, okay, all right. The idea of parting something, be it a body of water or a mountain, is given to show the power of God in a unique way. Whether God does it through a natural means or through a miracle which transcends nature, there is always the miraculous associated with it. 
The reason is that when the Bible records such an event, it is done in connection with a need or a desire of his people. And it's done at a time when it was necessary for that need or desire to be realized. Like the plagues on Egypt, God causes things to occur at specific times to show that he was behind it and it was not just arbitrary. The Red Sea's parting is such an event, and it points to other such marvelous events in redemptive history as well. These have been recorded in advance so that when they happen, the people will know that the Lord was behind it. This is the beauty of the Bible. It is a self-authenticating book filled with wisdom and glory. Our text verse today comes from Zechariah chapter 14. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord, thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. That's Zechariah 14, 1 through 5. The Red Sea is parted. The Mount of Olives will be rent asunder. And even the great chasm which stood between God and man, opposing our fellowship with him, has been bridged. A highway has been made for God's people to once again enter his presence. Marvelous things keep repeating themselves in the Bible to show us that God had it under control, that it has it under control, and he will continue to have it under control for all the ages which lie ahead. Oh, and the answer to the parting of the waters is four. The Red Sea, the Jordan when Israel finishes its wilderness wanderings, going into the land of Canaan for the first time, the Jordan for the prophet Elijah, and then the Jordan for the prophet Elisha. Just so you know. All of this wonder is to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is the parting of the waters. It's verses 21 through 25. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. In obedience to the word of the Lord in verse 16, Moses complies and stretches out his hand over the sea. In his hand would be the rod of God, which symbolized the power and the authority of the Lord. As during the other plagues, the hand here is being used as the principal cause, where the rod is used as the instrumental cause. In the intervening verses, since the Lord told him to do this, there was no questioning the Lord or seeming hesitation in his actions. Instead, Moses simply complied. It shows a complete confidence in the fact that the Lord would do exactly as he said he would do. Verse 21 going on, And the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night. There is both the sense of the natural and the miraculous in this account. The natural, however, does not diminish the miraculous at all. And whatever the true location of this event by today's maps, it was an event which cannot be as liberal scholars try to say. They say that it was merely a very shallow lake that was crossed. It very well could be in the region of the Bitter Lakes of Egypt today if they were truly a part of the Red Sea once. Or it could be at a place where the Red Sea is itself today. Either way, it is the Red Sea which was parted, not a shallow sea of reeds. When the rod was stretched out, a strong wind blew all that night, as it says, from the east. However, this could mean anything from a northeast to a southeast wind. The Bible speaks on just four general points. 
The Greek translation of this passage says that it was a southerly wind, and therefore it was probably a southeast wind, which pushed the waters away from a shallow area at Pihahiroth, and which extended all the way to Baal Zephon. This same effect can be seen out my back door several times a year. When a cold front comes through in the wintertime, the wind blows from the north. The wind blows very hard, and it almost drains the bay behind us. What is normally a very deep bay, which is about a mile across, can be traversed without going more than about a foot or two of depth, other than where the intercoastal waterway is, where they've dredged that out. But other than that, you can walk almost all the way across without getting more than about knee deep. Under the right circumstances, an even more complete drying of a sea could occur. There's no reason to think that this account didn't literally happen exactly as stated. The most miraculous part is that there is Israel. They're hemmed in from all sides and they're ready to face destruction, but a pillar of cloud and light kept the Egyptians away from them. The wind started blowing exactly as it was supposed to. The location where they were made it possible for the event to occur, and Israel was escorted to safety while Egypt was destroyed. Regardless of how God does something, the circumstances around the event are often more miraculous than the event itself. But, as this account shows, it was miraculous in both the event and its surrounding circumstances. The wind parted the waters to the point where the grounds became dry, and it is as if the winds licked up even the moisture from the sandy bottom, as we see now, verse 21 going on, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The word divided here is baka. It's a common word meaning to split, but it's often used in the most uncommon of passages. So far, it has been used in the breaking open of the fountains of the great deep in Genesis chapter 7, and in the splitting of the wood by Abraham in preparation for burning his son Isaac on the altar of sacrifice in Genesis 22. Now it is used in this third remarkable passage in the dividing of the waters of the Red Sea. In the use of this word for biblical events such as the ones we're seeing come about, the Haw Theological Word Book of the Old Testament says, The burden of these passages is not simply that God is possessed of such terrible power as to split rocks and waters, etc., but that the possessor of such power is able to redeem a lost creation. And in fact, each of these accounts so far has shown just that. Noah was redeemed from the destruction of the earth by water. Isaac was redeemed from the destruction of fire, and a substitute was given in his place. And now Israel is redeemed from destruction by Egypt, by the dividing of the waters, and Egypt being destroyed in their place. It is fascinating how even one word, like this obscure word, baka, can carry such immense theological importance in the overall biblical account. In this one here, the waters have been divided, the land has become dry, and a highway has been opened for God's redeemed to march through unto safety and into freedom. Verse 22, so the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. Jewish tradition has it that a guy named Nashon, who is the leader of the tribe of Judah, was the first person to enter into the path of the Red Sea, and that the entire tribe of Judah was the first to enter after that, leading all of the rest of Israel. However, Josephus, the great Jewish historian, records this. He says, When Moses had thus addressed himself to God, he smote the sea with his rod, which parted asunder at the stroke, and receiving those waters into itself, left the dry ground as a road and a place of flight for the Hebrews. Now, when Moses saw this appearance of God and that the sea went out of its own place and left a dry land, he went first into all of it, 
and bid the Hebrews to follow him along that divine road and to rejoice at the danger their enemies that followed them were in and gave thanks to God for this so surprising a deliverance which appeared from him. Regardless of the truth, the Bible itself refrains from saying what occurred. It simply says that the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea. However, in this verse, a different word for the word dry is used than in the previous verse. In verse 21, the word was harava. It would indicate ground which is free from water or drained. In this verse, it is yabasha. This comes from the word yabesh, which means dried up or withered. Hence, it is saying that the ground was literally free from moisture. It was completely dried. The words have been used in a progressive sense to show the complete preparedness of the path for the children of Israel to make the journey. Not only would the ground be free of water as if walking on a beach, but it would be completely dry as if walking on a desert path. Verse 22 going on, And the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Care needs to be taken here in this portion of the verse to not diminish what it says, nor to make un, an unfounded deduction concerning what is said. The liberal scholars at Cambridge note in their commentary, here's what they say, this is a very summary, poetical, and hyperbolical description of the occurrence. In other words, they're saying that this is just merely an exaggeration and nothing more. However, other scholars will take it in the opposite direction and say that the water of the sea gave up its nature, formed with its waves a strong wall, and instead of streaming like a fluid, congealed into a hard substance. This adds something into the account that isn't said. He's basing it on something from uh, chapter 15, which is a poetic narrative of what, uh, uh, not a narrative, it's a poetic account of what we're seeing in this narrative. Anyway, in fact, if the waters were hardened to ice, it would have said just that. The word translated here as wall is the word choma, and it means exactly that. It means a wall, such as the wall of a city. However, it can also be used metaphorically to mean protection. One of many examples which is found in the Bible is in 1 Samuel 25. I want to read this to you. It says, Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we were accompanied, when we accompanied them, when we were in the fields. And then this word, they were a wall to us both day and night, all the time we were there with them keeping sheep. Okay, so the wall there is metaphorical, it's not an actual wall. And because of this type of metaphorical use of this word, choma, other scholars say that the waters were a metaphorical defense for Israel. To further strengthen their stand, what they do is they go to Exodus 15, verse 8, which speaks of the same occurrence in the Red Sea. And it says that the waters stood up like a heap, using another word, which is ned, okay, which means a mound. However, the fact that the word ned is used does not diminish what is said here in this verse. Instead, it actually bolsters it. There was no need for protection or for defense on either side of Israel except for protection from the waters. The only defense they needed was taken care of by the pillar which stood between them and the Egyptians. Therefore, unless someone just dismisses this account as an outright fabrication, the only logical deduction is that the waters were actually a wall, exactly as described. They were supernaturally being held in place not by a mere natural occurrence, but by that which transcends the natural. 
The Lord has taken nature and he's worked within nature to a point to execute this miracle with the east wind. But his work transcends the natural after meeting that point. It is truly a work of God in its most marvelous sense. And this brings us to the reason for this display. In our sermon on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it was noted that there are two holy convocations which bracket this feast. One occurs on the first day of the feast and one on the seventh day of the feast. They stand as representative of the entire feast of unleavened bread. And this feast stands as representative of our time in Jesus Christ. From the day of our adoption when we receive Jesus until the day that we go home to him in glory. This passing through the Red Sea on the seventh day of the feast of unleavened bread symbolizes our passage from this life into the next. There is an impossible gulf for us to cross over, and yet the Lord has made that way possible. He has taken the natural, and he's combined it with the miraculous in order to allow his redeemed to cross over to safety on the other shore where our heavenly home awaits. This is the symbolism that we're given right here. It should be noted that by this time, the full moon of the day of the, the first day of that feast has now become a waning moon. The darkness would have been much more pronounced, just as in our deaths. But there is still a brighter light to lead them. Matthew Henry notes that where God leads us, he will light us. While we follow his conduct, we shall not want of his comforts. The path for our full and complete redemption has been paved through that impossible gulf. Every drop of water has been lifted off it. And despite the walls which stand on either side of us, there will be safety as we pass through into his glory. Remember that on the other side of where Israel now stands and to where they are heading is a place called Baal Zephon. We can rest at ease. Baal Zephon means the Lord is watching and he in fact is the rapture is coming and he is carefully watching over his flock until that day. When the time is right, the infinite gulf will be parted and we, his redeemed, will pass through with ease and safety. However, there is another aspect to this path which will not end in the same results for all people. And that's verse 23. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. I got to say this. I just, it comes to my mind every time I read this. What a bunch of dolts. I mean, really, I just, sorry to deviate from my thoughts, but what a bunch of dolts. Since the beginning of Exodus, the dynasty of Pharaoh has pictured the devil and the antichrist of the future. Egypt has pictured the world of sin. This wicked ruler wanted nothing more than to destroy Israel. The devil wants nothing more than to destroy God's people and the antichrist of the future who is filled with the power of the devil will want nothing more than to destroy Israel once again. The patterns of history repeat to let us know that the things which lie ahead have already been seen in the past. The army of Egypt now pursues Israel even into the midst of the sea. There is a marvelous story of redemption which follows the same pattern time and time again. In the case of Egypt, they foolishly decide to pursue Israel into the midst of this sea. The entire army of Pharaoh has failed to recognize the glory of the Lord, who has thus far been very slow to anger and even filled with patience and mercy towards the objects of his wrath. Verse 24, Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the, Egyptian, the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. In verse 19, it said that it was the angel of God in the pillar. Now it says that it is the Lord. 
These words are being used with specificity to show that the Lord is the angel of God. He is the messenger of God who works God's miracles and his wonders. With a proper analysis of the Bible, and we talked about this before we uh, had our service today, one can come to no other conclusion than the fact that Jesus Christ is God. Time and time again, specific terminology is used to show us God's progressive revelation of himself finally being realized in Jesus Christ. What a sad, sad thing it is that people miss this, either through deceit or simply a lack of caring about spending time in his word. From this verse, unless you understand that the Lord knows that everything is in control and that he has control of everything, it might sound like the Lord wasn't aware of the pursuing Egyptians because it says he looked down upon the army, right? That's not the case at all. Rather, the Bible is including us in the narrative of the events as they unfold. He has purposely allowed the Egyptians to pursue Israel into the sea. At the right moment, we are told that he looked down on them. This is a way of saying that their time of judgment has come. The Lord is in an elevated place, and he can look down in either favor or in condemnation. In Egypt's case, it's going to be the latter. This is called the morning watch in this verse, which would be between the hours of 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. It says at this time that he troubled the army of the Egyptians. The word here is hamam. It means to throw into confusion. And this is its first use in the Bible. The confusion being spoken of here is described in the 77th Psalm. Here's how they describe it. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Along with this confusion from the Lord came more trouble. Verse 25. And he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. This is one of those wonderful verses that comes up from time to time in the Bible where translators seem to find absolute pleasure in thinking up new ways of describing what occurred. The New King James Version says he took off their chariot wheels. Other versions say jammed, twisted, clogged, caused to swerve, took off, made wobble, overturned them grievously, overthrew, or turneth aside. The word here is sur. It means to depart. It doesn't seem that the words took off would fit here because of the next words, which are so that they drove them with difficulty. Rather, it is probable that the water from the rains described in the psalm that I just read you saturated the ground, causing them to get muddy so that they veered off course because of it. What was a perfectly dry and easy passage for the redeemed has now become an impossible journey for the Egyptians. Verse 25 continues, And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. With the din of the noise and the pursuit getting completely bogged down because of the situation they faced, the Egyptians are no longer the pursuers. Instead, they realize that they are now on the defensive. The Lord defended Israel while at the same time he began an awesome work against those who wished them harm. While the Lord protects his people, he troubles those who come to attack and destroy. Be confident, you who worship under the steeple, that the Lord will deliver great weapons he will employ. And though we may die in this temporary jar of clay, we have the surest hope of all to be raised anew. The Lord will come for us at the rapture, some wondrous day, the Lord who is ever faithful and true. For those who wait for him, the sea of death will part, and he will lead his people, guiding the way. On the other shore, our new life will start. Oh, even so, come Lord Jesus, yes, make it today. 
Our second thought is, not so much as one of them remained. This verses 26 through 29. Verse 26, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea. Just as he had been instructed at the beginning of this great event, he is now instructed at its end. God allows Moses the honor of being seen as the human redeemer of his people. It was thus intended that in their eyes he would be magnified and treated with the due respect that he deserved. Verse 26 going on, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen. These words form the center of a chiasm which spans verses 21 through 31. First, the Lord troubled Pharaoh's army in verses 23 through 25. Here Moses is said to take action which will result in their destruction. And finally, it will be fully realized in verse 28. So this is a chiasm, and I'll explain it very quickly. It's one that I found on uh, April 23rd of uh, 2008. And uh, the first verse is uh, A, 1421 says the Lord produced a miracle through Moses. And A, at the bottom, the Israelites saw the miracle and feared the Lord and Moses. And then B, through sea on dry ground, the waters were a wall to their left and their right. And then B on the bottom, through sea on dry ground, the waters were a wall to their right and their left. C, the army of the Pharaoh was troubled. C at the bottom, the army of Pharaoh is destroyed. D, stretch out your hand over the sea. D, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the anchor of this chiasm is the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen. So you can see the beautiful symmetry of God's word. And time and time again, we keep finding these chiasms in the book of Exodus where God is showing us patterns of redemptive history. The attention to these verses is given for us to contemplate our own safety in the Lord. Think of the progression of thought. There was the Passover, and then there was the Exodus, and then there was the Feast of Unleavened Bread with its beginning and ending convocations. In Christ, there is our being passed over because of the blood applied to our lives. In that, our exodus from the world of sin and death is granted. We began our adopted life in Christ, symbolized by that first day convocation. And we are brought out fully with the enemies destroyed behind us at the end of our time on earth, pictured by the seventh day convocation. Everything fits because it is from the mind of God for his people to see and to have confidence in. Chiasms like this short one give us hope that our trust in the Lord is not futile. And no matter how the devil rages against us, we are safe. We are secure and we are cared for by him. At the same time, the devil and his minions are destined for doom. Good news. Verse 27, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth. Another portion of the miraculous is seen in these words right here. Moses stretched out his hand and the waters were parted and he stretched them out again and they returned to their place. No ebb tide in history is so obedient to this even though they are timed by the movement of the earth and the moon. This was a most fitting miracle, a beautiful, fitting end. It's just wonderful. It must have been a long night for all concerned, but all would be freed from the anxiety of its events. Israel could camp on the other side of the sea, resting and rejoicing in the astonishing deliverance they had participated in, and the Egyptians, on the other hand, would face a different type of rest, that of death. When they are awakened from that, It will be for judgment and for condemnation. That day is still ahead, but it is as sure to come as was the complete deliverance which Israel was delivered by. Verse 27 continues, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. I got to tell you what, these are not the best words of translation here. 
they're not fleeing into the sea, okay? You got to be careful when you read Bible translations because sometimes people don't think clearly about what they're doing. The idea is that they were fleeing from the sea, not into it. The water simply caught up with them and they overwhelmed them. With a slight change or two, these words could be tidied up a bit. The idea when translating words like this is to add clarity of thought, not confusion. I want you to go home and read several other translations and you will find many better renderings than this. The NASB is very good. The Holman Bible, the International Standard Version, all translate it very well. The New King James Version didn't do a very good job, and that's based on the King James Version, so they kind of blew it on this. Verse 27 continues. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Moses was asked to stretch out his hand over the sea in order to bring the waters back to normal. He did as instructed, and yet here it says that, so the Lord overthrew the Egyptians. It shows a remarkable harmony between the two descriptions. Moses was given the honor in the sight of the people, and yet the Lord is given glory over the entire account. This is seen repeatedly throughout the Bible and in church history as well. Billy Graham preached the word of God according to the call of the Lord on his life, and yet it is the Lord who is glorified through the word that he preached. There's a harmony between the Lord and his chosen instruments where both are honored. It shows the amazingly gracious nature of the Lord upon whom he favors. Verse 28, Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. Flavius Josephus gives his commentary on what happened here, and it's rather important based on something that's coming later in Exodus. He says, Showers of rain also came down from the sky. And dreadful thunders and lightning with flashes of fire, thunderbolts also were darted upon them. Nor was there anything which uh, used to be sent by God upon, upon man as indications of his wrath, which did not happen at this time. For a dark and dismal night oppressed them, and thus did all these men perish, so that there was not one man left to be a messenger of this calamity to the rest of the Egyptians. Many scholars claim that only the chariots and the horsemen went into the sea. And they argue over the wording of the Hebrew, which seems to say this. They say that both the army and Pharaoh were actually excluded from the destruction of the waters. But this is probably incorrect. The Psalms seem to show that Pharaoh and all of his army were destroyed. Psalm 106 says that the waters covered their enemies so that not one was left. Psalm 136 says that the Lord overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. Therefore, there is no reason to doubt that this is not the case. The reason why this is relevant is because of what it pictures here. Then later in the Bible, during the tribulation period, Daniel explains what will come concerning the Antichrist. This is about the future to us now. He says these words, At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, meaning Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. Then he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. 
Like Pharaoh and his armies, the Antichrist will also go out to destroy and to annihilate, but he too will come to his end, and no one will help him. Revelation gives us a little bit more insight into his end. Here's what it says from Revelation 19. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him, meaning Jesus, who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire brimming with, uh, I'm sorry, lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. In chapter 20 of Revelation, the end of the devil is noted with his being cast into the lake of fire. Like the destruction of Pharaoh, both the Antichrist and the devil will be destroyed while the people of the Lord will be saved. History repeats itself, and each of those who think that they can defeat God's plans is in the end himself defeated. As Matthew Henry says about this, men will not be convinced until it's too late that those who meddle with God's people meddle to their own hurt. This is a truth which will be seen more and more in the world as we head into the end times. Both those who persecute Christ's church and those who come after his people Israel will find that their actions will ultimately only harm themselves. Verse 29, But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Repeated again in order to close out the chiasm of these verses, we are told here that Israel was kept safe on Yabasha, or perfectly dried ground, and yet right in the midst of the sea. All the while the waters remained a wall on their right hand and on their left. Judgment will come on all who have not received Jesus, God has offered terms of peace, but the time will run out. It is up to each and every one of us to receive him and his forgiveness by faith, having no doubt. For those who fail to take hold of this offer, only judgment and death is the option that remains. By nailed, scarred hands, the Lord has made the proffer. No other way will allow for the heavenly gains. And so learn the lesson of the armies of Pharaoh. Call out to Jesus and be saved by his blood. The path to the other side is exceedingly narrow. For those who refuse, over them will come the destructive flood. Our third thought today, so the people feared the Lord. Verses 30 and 31. Verse 30, so the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. Though they had observed the Passover and began their exodus from Egypt, it cannot be said that the Israelites were actually saved until this day. Both the Passover and the exodus implied that they were saved but until they passed through the bonds of the Red Sea and the enemies of Israel were destroyed, there was still a work of salvation ahead of them. And this is exactly where we are right now. We have observed our Passover in the death of Jesus Christ, just as Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We are living in our Feast of Unleavened Bread, as he notes in that same chapter as well. But we are still in this body awaiting our final deliverance, which he doesn't write about until 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in those rapture verses. We are still living in the land of Egypt, and we are affected by the spirit of Pharaoh as the world comes against us. But the Lord is with us, and our day of deliverance is ahead. This is why Paul so often writes about our salvation as a done deal, and yet he writes about it as a future event as well. In the Lord, it is a done deal. But as we wait on the Lord, we look forward to a future with eager anticipation. This day of being saved out of the hand of the Egyptians was on the seventh day after their departure. It is the day the Lord set aside as their holy convocation to end the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
our day of departure is pictured in that feast, and may it be soon for all of the people of the Lord. Verse 30 continues, And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Like salvation, judgment belongs to the Lord. There are those who are his, and there are those who are not. The world needs to wake up to the fact that these ancient stories are given to show us what lies ahead, not just what happened in the past. Death will come on a global scale someday for those who have harmed and harassed the Lord's people and for those who have failed to give him the glory that he is due. According to the book of Isaiah, man will become rarer than fine gold on that day. In this verse, the fact that the dead Egyptians were seen on the seashore provides another level of credibility to the eyewitness nature of this account. It made enough of an impression upon Moses to include the fact, which would otherwise probably have been omitted by a later you know, writer of this account. In an interesting portion of the writings of Josephus concerning this event, we read these words. On the next day, Moses gathered together the weapons of the Egyptians, which were brought to the camp of the Hebrews by the current of the sea, and the force of the winds resisting it. And he conjectured, conjectured that this also happened by divine providence, that so they might not be destitute of weapons. So when he had ordered the Hebrews to arm themselves with them, he led them to Mount Sinai in order to offer sacrifice to God and to render oblations for the salvation of the multitude as he was charged to do beforehand. The reason why we should pay heed to this as probably factual from the writings of Josephus is that in the coming pages of the Bible, Israel is going to go to battle and they will continue in battles until after they enter the land of promise. It is these weapons which they would be able to use during those battles. One of them is coming up in just a couple chapters. Verse 31, thus Israel saw the great work of the Lord, great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. This sentence must certainly be a fitting summary of the entire period of Moses' leadership from the first time he presented himself to them in Exodus chapter 4 until this moment when the multitude of Egypt's army lay dead at their feet. Moses had showed them the three signs given to him by the Lord at the burning bush. He had taken them through the ten plagues which utterly destroyed the land. He had marched them out under the full moon with cries filling the homes of the Egyptians and yet they had waffled, they had lost faith, and they had even cast accusations at Moses and thus implicitly on the Lord. But with the parting of the Red Sea to deliver them and then its closing to destroy Egypt, they saw the great work, or as the Hebrew describes it, Hayad Hagedola, the mighty hand of the Lord. And with these events, they saw a new resoluteness came into their hearts. Verse 31 finishes with these words. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. The fear here is not fear as in dread. Rather, it's a reverential fear. The idea of fearing the Lord in this reverential way is repeated numerous times throughout the Bible. It is a way of saying, I know that he loves me, but I know that his grace and his mercy are unmerited. I receive that, and I return reverence to him. It's like our own father, even if we know that he loves us, we will fear to let him down through disobedience. If we do, we would shame the one who loves us. This is the attitude that the Israelites now feel. They have previously let down both the Lord and Moses, but now they have learned to fear the Lord. Further, they have come to believe in him. Not only is he given the reverential fear of their hearts, but they have come to know that when he speaks, his words are both true and reliable, that they can be counted on. Likewise, because Moses is his servant, they have come to know that he can be also 
believed in and followed as well. Before the two were mentally disconnected by the Israelites, the Lord was just a God to them, and Moses was a person claiming to represent him. Whether that was the case or not, they had no idea. But now, Jehovah is the God to them, and Moses is his representative. The entire process has been one which was intended to bring about this final result right here. If only the people would stay as resolute in their thinking as at this high point in their history as at all other times in their history. But we know that they didn't. But Israel, like many today, believed for just a little while and then they fell away. What we need to do, and I'm talking to every single individual here, is to ground our belief deeply in our souls so that we will never fail to trust the Lord at all times. But all trust must have a starting point. And maybe you've never taken the time to simply trust Jesus to deliver you from your present predicament. If not, today's passage is simply a small reflection of a much greater story of redemption, one which you may participate in as well. And all it takes is just a simple act of faith. This is even what the ancients were noted for. In the great hall of fame of faith, which is chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews in the Bible, we are told that stepping onto a path in the middle of the Red Sea actually took real faith. Here's what it says. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. In this act, this act of faith, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that Israel received their baptism. Moreover, he says, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. If you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ and received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, let me tell you why you should and how you can even right now. The reason why you should is because there is an impassable gulf. It's called death. And when we come to the end of our life, God is out here and we're here. We're finite and fallen and there can never be any fellowship between the two, ever. He is infinitely holy and infinitely righteous. And in our death, that impassable gulf can never be breached. And so there's only one option for the soul that departs apart from Jesus Christ, and that's the lake of fire. That's what this great sea of the Egyptians being destroyed is picturing, the end of all things. But Jesus Christ stepped out of eternity, holy and righteous and infinitely pure, and he united with human flesh, and he became a man, fully God and yet fully man. And he lived that perfect law that is given to Moses at Mount Sinai, he was born under it, he lived it, and he died under it. And in that law, there is something that is granted to the people of Israel. It's called the, the doctrine of substitution. An animal could take the place of the sins of a human, and they did this year by year on the Day of Atonement. But the Bible later, in the book of Hebrews, says that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. It was only given as a picture of hope of the coming Redeemer. Only a man can take away another man's sin. It has to be on an equal standing. And Jesus Christ did that. Perfect without sin, living perfectly without sin, dying on a cross perfectly without sin, saying, I will take your sin on me. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. That's all we need to do is say, I trust that what he did is sufficient. I receive his forgiveness of sins. And I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord, my Savior, my only hope. And when you do that, you will be saved. And you will someday pass through that infinite gulf that no other person can pass through. 
It's either at the rapture or at your death. They'll both happen at the rapture, though, but it's going to happen. It is as sure as it can be. So please don't go another moment without asking Jesus to just simply forgive you of your sins. All right? Our closing verse today comes from Colossians. It's chapter 1. It's verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. As I said, Paul writes of salvation as a done deal and yet he also writes about it as a future event. Perfect example right there. And just so you know, another parting of the waters is anticipated in Israel's future. Isaiah tells us about it. Here's from Isaiah 11. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. With his mighty wind, he will shake his fist over the river and make strike it in the seven streams and make men cross over dry shod. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. Wonderful stuff. Four times already, got another one promised. It's great stuff from a great God. Next week is Exodus 15, 1 through 10. And I'm going to say this at the beginning of the sermon, but just in case, you know, I, 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 I want you to know, I was typing this sermon. You're going to hear exactly this if you listen to it, but I want to say it now because it's on my heart. I was typing this sermon Monday morning and mom had to come and pick somebody up or I can't remember exactly what the reason was, but she came over and, uh, or maybe she called and, um, I, I said, boy, I've got a tough, tough sermon ahead of me. It's, uh, it's going to be the song of Moses. And she says, oh, you do fine. I said, you don't understand. It's in poetic form. And I, I just don't know how I'm going to write a sermon on that. It turned out to go on and on and on. I had to divide the sermon. I had to cut out poems. It is the most marvelous piece of poetry. It is so majestic and so beautiful. I was crying as I was typing it. I want you to know it is, it is astonishing, the song of Moses by the sea. So if, if you don't come, at least watch it on YouTube. It is, it is glorious. It's, uh, let's see, it's Exodus 15, 1 through 10. It will be loads and loads of fun. The Song of Moses, The Song at the Sea, Part 1. That'll be our 42nd Exodus sermon, all right? And I've said this to you now for dozens and dozens and dozens of sermons, and we're finally today where I can actually say it in reality. Israel may not have believed it, but they found out that it is true. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you, and he has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters, and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him. And trust him. And he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right. I have a poem based on our verses. And we'll get into the Lord's Supper. It's called, So the People Feared the Lord. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord caused the sea to go back as if derided. By a strong east wind all that night, one so mighty. And made the sea into dry land. And the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. And the waters were a wall to them, one heaven sent on their right hand and on their left waters all around. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he brought the army of the Egyptians some real harmony. Yes, I made that word up. And he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, from the face of Israel, let us flee. The Lord for them against the Egyptians, he fights for them. This is their most terrifying of nights. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, on their chariots and on their horsemen, so let it be. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing away, its waters over them reared. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians completely. There it happened in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained to shoot an arrow. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left, protecting them completely. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the Egyptians' hand. And the Israel saw the Egyptians on the dead on the seashore. Hooray! A mighty deliverance, ever so grand. Thus Israel saw the great work promised by his word, which the Lord had done in Egypt as the account closes. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. What will it take for you to believe? What is it that you have to see in order for the Lord Jesus to receive? When will you say it is sufficient for me? God has shown us so much love and care throughout the world. His power is seen. His wisdom is on display everywhere in the skies of blue and in the fields of green. And even more sure is his prophetic word. It is there for us to pick up, study, and believe. It tells us about our great and awesome Lord. Please search it out and then Jesus receive. He is coming again to bring his people home to a place where there shall no more tears be. We will be content never from his presence to roam, but walking in his glory for all eternity. Let us pursue him now and give him praise from our heart. Let it be today. Yes, it is a good day for us to start. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, how wonderful you are. How absolutely glorious you are. A Red Sea was parted for people to walk through on absolutely dry ground. And an infinite chasm is waiting for us to just pass through. Unbelievable that you did that through the death of your own son. His shed blood is enough to bridge that infinite chasm. Great are you, O God, and greatly are you to be praised. Forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of our, our faithlessness. Help us always to pursue you and to honor you and to glorify you with this life. And be with me today as I and Darla go and talk to this precious soul that needs Jesus. Help us to uh, comfort her and give her the right words that uh, she needs to understand that she has true salvation and an eternal hope. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We exalt you. We glorify you. In the name of Jesus, amen. And just so you know, when you come up and uh, take the communion, you can take it a, a cute uh, a look at a cute um, uh, cartoon that my wife, uh, she's been holding on to this for years and years. It's from Non Sequitur. And uh, it's got Moses parting the Red Seas and Caleb walking through with a surfboard. And uh, Moses says, I don't think you completely grasp the seriousness of the situation here, Caleb. So very cool stuff. Anyway, there you go. And I'll put that on the video as well for people to see that. Oh, i got to move this. I hope that uh, people will forgive me for always forgetting this. And I'm so thankful to Sergio for having gotten that done. Unbelievable. Mr. I can do anything in a single night. Uh, the Lord gives us the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly uh, from the hand of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There he records these words. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. 
And he would have given thanks over this. He would have said these precious words. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed this as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body in the blood. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.